Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, February 22nd, 2018, and for the first time in a while we have the right show on the right day. I think I've got things somewhat moving along, though 2018 is still turning into the year that can... I'm not even going to say it. There's a phrase that's going around out there. I put it out on Facebook a couple days ago. That's how I feel about this year. And it just got worse. But you know what? We're going to have a good time today anyway. It is time for your calls to the Think Line. That's 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. You go there, and you end up... Um, Getting a voicemail that says, hey, you know, leave your message, and you leave me your message. It comes to me through the magic of the interwebs as a .wav file. I listen to it, and maybe you'll hear yourself on the air. The formula to get on the air, make your point or ask your question up front in one sentence, and then give me details. Also call from a quiet area, and if you're on a cell phone, make sure that there's a few bars on your phone. One is not a few. Two is a couple. Three is a few. If you do that, you won't sound like this. Hi, Jack. And I was wondering, like that, and you know, nobody's there to tell you. So follow those rules, and you know, you probably have an 80% chance or better of getting on the air sooner or later. At a certain point, I do end up with stuff, stuff that gets pushed into the backlog. So if you know, if you go three weeks after making a call and you don't hear yourself on the air, call it again. Uh, you might have got just uh, screened out just due to quantity at that point. All right. With that, what are we going to talk about today? I got seven great calls lined up. I have a call on what to feed your doggies. I have a question on choosing a good ground cover for a recently cleared area. I have thoughts on peppers, really, really hot ones like Carolina Reaper and other insanity peppers, as I call them. I have more on the decline of government schools, another canary in the coal mine going tweet, 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 legs up and down on the ground to tell us what's really happening. Uh, can, I have a question on container strawberries and worm bin fodder. I have a question on UBI as it would relate to cryptocurrency. UBI, of course, is being universal basic income. I like the way the caller comes at this. I have some of my own thoughts on how that could work and what might be the horrible, uh, the horrible results of it and what might be the good results of it. And then I have a final segment on dealing with tough beef. Someone got some good grass-fed beef, uh, tough as shoe leather. What can be done about it, especially things like the steaks? Because you really want to throw that ribeye into a grinder, you don't. So I'm going to tell you a couple different ways that you can deal with this. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we get into our main topic today, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors today. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Harvest Eating, the illustrious chef Keith Snow. Man, the guy's got a great food blog. He's got a great podcast. He's got some great courses like the Paleo Beef Course and the uh, Food Storage Feast Course. He's also got some great seasonings, all kinds of really good stuff. And you can find kind of his home base where everything is over at HarvestEating.com. Go check him out today. And remember, he is a member of the Expert Council, and you can send in questions for Chef Keith as well, TSPC expert in the subject line. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. The guys that were like when I just started out, and I was in my car doing this show, and like 50 people were listening, somehow found us, and were like, hey, we love what you're doing. We want to sponsor the show. And I actually didn't take them on as a sponsor for about six months because I didn't feel that we could actually, you know, 
earn the, the 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 value of a sponsor, and I didn't want to start that relationship off poorly. But about six months later, I had a few thousand listeners, and I was like, you know, I, I think we can do something now. And they were still there and still ready to go. They've been supporting us ever since. That's a nine years, nine years and some months now, right? Some nine years and change of support from a sponsor on a podcast. And what do they have at SafeCastle? Everything you can think of for your prepping needs. You'll find it all at SafeCastle.com. Uh, just remember how loyal they've been to us. And then there's another thing they do. You know, I have that MSB thing, right? You know, member support brigade. You join the MSB, you get their discount program for free for life. You can't even get it for life any other way anymore. They sell it at an annual fee, but you can get it for life as an MSB member. And that one benefit pays for your MSB for the first year all by itself. So it's they're just really great supporters of the show. So with that, um, let me remind you, you can help support this show by becoming a member of the MSB, or Members Support Brigade. To learn more, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members, and uh, you can find out how to sign up there. Remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, firefighters, all the guys like that, uh, any of those professions, active duty or prior service, not just full retirement, active duty or prior service in any of them, you qualify for a discount for that program. To get the discount, just send me an email uh, with TSPC service discount in the subject line and uh, tell me about your service in one or two sentences and I'll send you that discount code. Do that before, not after you join. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, main topic of today's show and hear our first question again. We have a question uh, on feeding your doggy, and I have some thoughts on that. Jack, what should I feed my dog? Um, I have a new puppy. I've had many dogs before, but I guess I'm thinking a little bit more about what I should feed him this time. Um, we're currently feeding them the Diamond Puppy Chow. Diamond seems like a pretty good brand. The first ingredient is meat. Um, and we're thinking about switching to the Costco brand because I think it's made by Diamond. It also has pretty good reviews, but that's just kibble, and, you know, that might be, you know, half as bad or something, but, you know, should I be feeding them, you know, real meat, leftovers, things like that, or, you know, some other supplement or anything like that, so... Um, you know, and I've always given my dog, um, my dogs, I guess, before this, uh, you know, rib bones and things like that from, uh, that I've cooked. I don't give, I don't tend to give them ch cooked chicken bones. Um, but, uh, anyways, I'd like your thoughts on it. I know you've talked about it before, maybe in your built on video, but, uh, if you could give me a few more details on ant specifics. Thanks a lot. So I'm going to take this in two ways. What I do and what I think would be optimum. And I'll tell you that I don't do what I think would be optimum because of cost and convenience and just the, the sheer volume of food required to feed uh, about almost 300 pounds of dog. I have a 150-pound shepherd, a 100-plus-pound pit bull, and a dog that's now in a 65-pound rain in Lucy Lou, uh, the Pitsky mix, right? Um, so there is just a, a a hurdle when you have that many animals to what you can afford and what have you. Though I'm looking more and more into different sources of raw meat, 
what I feed my dogs. We generally buy, um, we buy a variety of different brands of commercial dog food. We do look for dog foods that have meat of some sort, meat and meat byproducts as the number one uh, item. I do feed my dogs raw meat all the time. If I'm trimming meat and there's stuff that's going to be discarded, um, I feed it to them raw. And I am a big believer in that. My dogs eat raw eggs multiple times a week between what we feed them on purpose and what they find out on the farm. Um, I think that is a huge, those two factors, even with the commercial dog food, are, I think are huge factors as to why my dogs are as healthy as they are and look as good as they do. Uh, my boy Max does have some hip issues and all. He's also 150-pound German Shepherd. But if you look at the, the coats on my dogs, and I think one of the number one ways you can tell the health of a dog is one, are they walking around with all kinds of fatty tumors all over them, and they're not. Um, though as they get older, you know, it's normal for dogs to have that type of development. But you know what I'm talking about when it's like everywhere. Uh, that is not a good sign. And what does their coat look like? What does their coat look like? What do their eyes look like? What does their tongue look like? Uh, what does their, their gum and teeth health look like? And my dogs are just pictures of health, and especially Max for how old he is. Um, he is old enough that if he had passed by now, it wouldn't be shocking based on the average age the German Shepherds love to. I'll just put it that way. And he's in, for an old man, he's in good shape. The two younger dogs, they are the picture of health. People think Charlie's a little fat. He's not. That dog is a solid lump of muscle. Uh, and Lucy Lou is just a gorgeous specimen of a dog. Um, I, I, I almost wish we had held off on having her fixed and, and had found someone to breed her to to have pups from her. She is amazing. Um, and I think the, 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 the raw food component to the diet and the raw egg component to the diet are hugely valuable to the dog. And you know, going with when you are selecting your, your brand of dog food, looking for something that has meat is the number one ingredient. We, in America, in general, feed grains to our dogs. And I, I, I cannot say that I'm at that optimum level where I'd be 100% grain-free with my dogs. Again, it's expense and convenience. Um, you know, I think I give my dogs a pretty good life. And I can either do that for three dogs or I can do it for one dog optimally. And I think three dogs getting close is, is, is good enough. Uh, we, I do at times when I see, like, you know, cheap chicken on sale and things like that, I will buy an ass load of that. And I will feed it. I will just throw it to them, and I will let them tear it apart, chew it up, crunch it up, and eat it. Uh, and I'll have a vet tell me something like, "You should give them an all-natural treat, like a carrot." First of all, my dogs don't like carrots unless they're cooked in meat juice. And second of all, where the hell would a dog get a carrot in nature? It's going to be natural. What do dogs eat? Dogs primarily eat either scavenged carrion uh, in, in nature. Uh, is you know feral or wild dogs, or they eat small game, rodents, rabbits, things like that. When we lived in Arkansas, um, Max, Blackie, and the two neighbor German shepherds from up the road would run up and down the road together and work in a pack and hunt rabbits. And whoever got the rabbit didn't share. I'm talking whole rabbit right down. Charlie catches rabbits here. Some of you guys have been here and seen him do it. That dog will eat a rabbit like it's a like he's a freaking lizard eating a mouse. Goes down hole. Dog does not get sick. This dog does not have digestive issues and things like that. In our world, we have decided that we should cook food for dogs. Do you want to know how to give a dog diarrhea? Give it a large amount of cooked meat. It will shit its brains out. Um, my dad did it with a cooked liver one time, and my little Yorkshire Terrier we had when I, was a pup, when I was a kid basically exploded on the wall with diarrhea. It was a mistake. 
He made a big giant S curve as he drug his burning butt on the carpet too. It was a big mistake for my dad. Unfortunately, since he did it, I didn't have to be the one to clean it up. You feed a dog raw meat, you generally do not get this problem. Why? The dog's digestive system is, is, is made for eating raw meat. So what do I think is optimum? I think optimum is probably chicken and other uh, inexpensive meat. Um, if your dog's too small to be able to crunch bones and stuff up, they actually make really strong, kind of like turbocharged grinders and grind bones and all, and that's fine. I think most dogs don't even require that. Dogs are not going to get bones stuck in their throats and die if they're eating raw bones. The collar's dead on with cooked bones. Cooked bones get crystalline, and they get broken, and they go into sharp shards, and those can cause big problems for your dogs. I do not like to feed dogs cooked bones at all. It's very small amounts of cooked meat, little little tidbit off of the plate, something like that, but no large amounts, or you're going to get diarrhea. If something gives an animal diarrhea, it's not good for them. That's, it's that simple, right? So if, if cooked meat gives your doggy diarrhea, that means your doggy shouldn't be eating cooked meat. It's not healthy for him. When you eat something that's healthy for you, it doesn't give you the shits. Now, something many of you do not know about me is that many years ago, I actually delved off into the world of alternative health and began to, uh, to study uh, professionally toward um, achieving a degree in, in, in naturopathic medicine. I decided not to continue with that course of action, but I did start walking down that path. And during that time, one of the people I came to know is a lady named Lou Olson, who had uh, become already achieved her Ph.D., and she went into the natural health world as well, and she focused on canine nutrition. And she was the person that most switched me onto a raw food diet for dogs. She has a book. It is fantastic. It is on raw food diet for your dogs. It is called Raw and Natural Nutrition for Dogs, Definitive Guide to Homemade Meals, uh, again, by Lou Olson, Ph.D. She's fantastic. And if you want to find the optimum, I recommend her book. I do have a link in today's show notes. And she gets the official Spearco Seal of approval. She may not remember me, but I certainly remember her, and I've mentioned her many times. So um, if you're going to go with commercial food, as much protein, as much meat as, as possible is the, is the main ingredient, and supplement with other raw foods. If you want an optimum, go 100% raw food diet. That's my opinion. Um, your mileage may vary. Your opinion may differ. Uh, but I'm basing mine on a, a, a Ph.D. who has basically spent her life dedicated to canine nutrition. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Wood Tamer from Northwest Florida, and um, I'm calling for your recommendations about what would be the best ground cover for freshly cleared land. My wife and I recently bought four acres in uh, Northwest Florida on the uh, freshwater lake, and it was very heavily um, and very densely forested, which we've cleared, oh, about a quarter to a half acre, and uh, we've put filtered on it, anywhere from about an inch to maybe up to a foot thick in places. And fill dirt in our area is basically sand. If you're lucky, you have a little bit of clay in it. And I'm looking for a good ground cover to start building some nutrition in that soil. My ultimate uh, plan for that area would be just to have it be in kind of native grasses or something that would look like that so that I can mow it from time to time to keep bushes from growing back. Uh, it's in our view to the lake. Really appreciate uh, what you do and look forward to your thoughts on that. Thanks, Seth. Bye. Well, I mean, my goal, if I were you, would be kind of right on what you said, a mix of perennial grasses and clover. Now, 
I'm not real familiar with what the native perennial grasses for your state are. Uh, but your, your feed stores, your ag stores would probably have a, a lot of information on that. So I would check there and I would look to establish a mix of clover. And, and I would say in your climate, you're probably looking to like New Zealand white and Dutch white as your primary clovers and get some other clover into that mix too. Like let's say strawberry, uh, O'Connor's crimson, uh, red. Uh, things like that, uh, small amounts, uh, large, you know, large quantity, small amounts sown repeatedly. Uh, every time it rains, get out and sow a little bit. Uh, initially, a really great thing to do is just get some cheap annual ryegrass and get that down right away. It can deal with the winter temperatures. It'll summer kill, and it'll give a place for all of these other things to kind of take off. But you definitely want to success that into a perennial grass. And that's that's really my primary um, suggestion for you uh, there, is you know again find out the perennial grass species that do best in your area, try to build it on that, get as much diversity as it, into you that you can, um, and and small amounts of other things too would probably be well uh, in there uh, to improve irrigation and start to build some soil. Uh, maybe get yourself a few ounces of purple top turnip. Uh, and let that just, you know, grow until its heart's content. And, uh, eventually with, as you cut it and what have you, it will d have a die off and those roots will rot into the ground. Daikon radish should be another thing that I would look at getting into there. Not huge amounts of this, you know, just a, a, a smattering, if you were, throughout the, the total. And I, I think that's just as, as good a path as anything's going to, to be for you because you're looking to maintain it as, let's call it pasture lawn. If you were looking to uh, to basically fill it with you know, into like a food forest, uh, then we might look at things like um, you know uh, in the winter time we might look at things like uh, triticale and Caius white oat, and we might look in the summer to things like um, iron clay pea, red cow pea, standard black eyed pea, uh, things like that, uh, buckwheat. The problem with those, those are all fantastic plants, but they grow very, very aggressively. They tend to choke everything else out, and then when they're annuals and they die, you end up with a pear patch ground. So you can use those as a quick reparative strategy as well, but you need to have a plan to know like when are these things going to either summer or winter kill, depending on which one you're planting. And you have to have that perennial secession going in about three weeks to four weeks in advance of that. So it's just coming up as these things are falling down. That's actually a pretty good way to go too, but it requires a little bit more attention to detail. And I think with your rainfall and how deep your sandy soils are in Florida, that if you go with a simple plan of a little bit of some, you know, extra stuff in there, uh, again, like some, some, uh, some turnip and some, uh, uh Dicon radish mixed with a good uh, a good smattering of, of a perennial clover mix will do well. The other thing I would say is you probably since it's not that big an area, it would it would be a good idea to let's go ahead and build the health of that soil uh, using an organic uh, fertilizer uh, at something like uh, 20 pounds per thousand square foot, uh, using uh, possibly giving it a good soaking. Uh, when you seed it and once the seeds come up with a garret juice uh, mixture 
uh, would be a really great thing to do with that as well. Uh, covering that with a straw mix when you put the seed down will do well. And at a quarter acre, you know, it's probably worth investing short term in some of like the whirly bird style sprinklers, the ones that stand about, oh, they stand about three foot tall. And they have a three arms and they spin. They're made out of a, a metal uh, base that's green. And they have like a brass as the, the arm. Usually most wells or city water will push about three of those really well. And when you first see that, you know, hook three of them together with leader hoses, move them around as much as you need to do, and water it every day and keep it wet until you get sprouted and roots down. So probably from the time you see your first stuff come up, Uh, to when you can stop watering, assuming that you get a reasonable amount of rain, uh, you're, you're looking at three to four weeks of that. And then you probably won't need to water much at all in your climate. Uh, that's about the best I can do for you with the information I have. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. My name is Dean. I'm calling from Idaho, and I have a question about pepper seeds. I listened to your podcast a few weeks back and got inspired to get my peppers started, ordered seeds from Baker Creek, and they had... Uh, Carolina Reaper and also a starfish or a star pepper that were hot. I am not a person who likes an insane amount of heat to the point that it's painful, but I ordered some of those Carolina Reaper seeds anyway, and I wondered, two-part question, one, do you have a practical use for this pepper? Two, um... What do you think about maybe using them as a novelty and sprouting them, growing them out, and selling them? Hey, I appreciate everything. Great podcast. We'll uh, look forward to hearing your answer. Thank you. Bye. You know, as far as starting way more than you need and selling them, kind of the novelty of like the hottest pepper there is or whatever, you probably actually can get like five bucks a plant for them. Uh, as long as you grow them out to a reasonably stocky, good-looking pepper and, and, and you know make people aware of what they are. And you know you might even be able, if you wanted to make a little bit more money, is get a much larger pot, charge more for them. The more you grow them out, the more you charge for them and teach people you know something that most people don't know. Peppers are not annuals. We grow peppers as annuals, and we do that because it freezes in most of the United States. But in, in tropical and subtropical climates where we don't get below freezing, peppers grow into perennial bushes, and that's what they are. They're a, a, a short to midterm perennial shrub with an average life expectancy of 5 to 15 years. Uh, and they can go longer than that, especially if they're pruned. Pruning is basically a form of coppicing. And, or, or pollarding, it'd be more accurate. And it's, it's a funny thing with many plant species, pruning them and causing them to continuously do a regrowth uh, actually extends their life. There are uh, chestnut coppice systems that are over a thousand years old, but the average chestnut tree does not live to be a thousand years. It's, it's really an interesting thing. Um, so that would be maybe one way to take that avenue. Now, as far as, like, I bought this really stupid hot pepper, but I don't really like stupid hot peppers. Dude, why? <laughs> you know, maybe it's just the, the novelty. Now, actually, there is hope. So if you want me to tell you how to make a Carolina Reaper where you can slice it up and throw it in your salad and not kill you, I can't help you. But what we're looking for from peppers is generally, when we talk about hot peppers, two things, flavor and spice. And the, the good news about something like a Carolina Reaper or what have you is a very small amount brings a lot to the party. 
So probably one of the, the better things that you can do with these types of peppers is go ahead and dry them out in a dehydrator. Please put your dehydrator outside when you do this, or you will basically CS gas yourself and, and tear gas yourself in your house, and it will be a long time before you're happy about things again in life. So do this outside. Um, you know, Cut them up. Wear gloves when you cut peppers. You can actually burn your hands with them. Uh, dry them up. Uh, throw them in a jar with an O2 absorber or even just a desiccant, and you have, you know, probably from one good healthy plant, you'll probably produce more of this stuff than you can use for, oh, I don't know, maybe the rest of your life. And then you can experiment with using small amounts of it with your coffee grinder that really is a spice grinder to make different pepper blends. So we can take something like a very mild chili, like an ancho or a guajillo, or something like that, or even maybe a little bit of jalapeno, and then you know maybe five percent of the total end volume, and throw a little garlic in there with it, you know, a little dried garlic, and maybe five percent of the total net weight is that Carolina Reaper, and then we can put that. We don't stick our finger in there and no, no, we try it on something and say, oh, that level of heat is perfect, or oh, that level of heat, I can do with a little more heat. So then. We go back to our grinder and we bring it up to maybe 10% of the volume, which would be probably more than you need. You can also do fermented hot sauces with this. A uh, really good thing to do. And the best thing I know to cut your fermented uh, pepper sauces with are either other milder peppers or carrots. Carrot seems to work really good. And you can look at various different uh, recipes to do fermented pepper hot sauce. I love hot sauces and, and powders. Because they let us do exactly what I said, a small amount of heat to the party, and you know then things are great. So I'm not going to sit down and, and, and you know eat really hot hot sauce off a spoon. But when I have my chili that I've made up, and I have to make you know what I call Yankee chili, and that doesn't mean it has beans in it, because there's chili and there's chili with beans, and you can be as purest as you want, Texans. I'm sorry. Uh, when you put beans in chili, it doesn't stop being chili. It's just it's nonsensical. It becomes chili with beans and Traditional chili made in Texas was made mostly with beans because it started out, and I'll just let that go. Anyway, um, so when I make my Yankee chili, which is too mild for my taste because otherwise Dorothy won't eat it, I'll take some hot sauce and I'll put two or three drops in it and I'll try it if it's not hot enough. And, and the same with uh, ground chili uh, powders as well. So you can add that little bit of heat, and that's kind of the direction I would go. The other thing you can do with a lot of these peppers sometimes is to... Use them in something like a fermented uh, product, like uh, some lacto-fermentation here, to add heat to them. So if you were doing something like, oh, I don't know, fermented garlic, that you wanted to have the garlic and the fermented garlic juice to cook with, which is fantastic, and we were going to make up, let's say, a quart of fermented garlic, you know, just a single, you know, like sliver, basically like an eighth to a quarter of one of those super hot peppers in that ferment is going to put heat through the whole damn thing. You'll probably actually want to discard that pepper at the end or use little small pieces of it in your cooking, but that garlic will have an incredible amount of heat to it then, and we can use that as an ingredient in cooking. And, and to me, that's how these types of things are best used. I don't, I don't really believe that there's people out there that sit down and eat Carolina Reaper peppers that really enjoy it. I think there's people that can tolerate it and they'll show off with it and all, but that's, that's not how these peppers are meant to be used. And I do think we've gone to the little bit to the insane side of things. My kind of heat level for peppers like this are things like habaneros, uh, lemon drop, detal, 
uh, th those types of peppers are all the the the, the Chinese. Uh, what do you call it? Um, Capsaicin Chinese, right? In in, in that genre, uh, are, are kind of my upper limit. I also do a lot of things like serranos and uh, mariachis, jalapenos, and things like that that are a lot more mild. Fresnos, I think, probably the perfect chili pepper for general use without having to make it into a powder or something like that is the Fresno pepper, uh, which people call a red jalapeno, which is nonsense because a red jalapeno is a red jalapeno. A Fresno is a Fresno. A jalapeno has a rounded tip and a Fresno has a pointed tip and it's thinner walled than a jalapeno. They look beautiful in your cooking. They taste fantastic. Uh, they have a lot of great flavor. They're a little hollower than a jalapeno, but like thin slice and then put into a stir fry and eating them whole when they're cooked in with other things, you can do that without feeling like you're going to die. And I, I just don't get trying to, you know, create a pepper product that makes you feel like you're going to die. It just is not what I'm looking for in my food. I'm not looking for my food to, to kill me. Uh, but having a little bit of heat, it's nice. So give that a shot. And, you know, report back to us at the end of the season. Let us know how it goes. And, uh, my God, gloves when you're cutting these super hot peppers up. And take them off and throw them away. Do not touch these peppers and touch your face, your nose, your eyes, or your junk. Don't do it. You'll you'll wish you didn't. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Karim from Austin here. It's been a while. Um, I just wanted to call and say, I know we've been talking about schools, uh, public schools hurting and, uh, you know, going south nowadays. And I just wanted to say that uh, apparently Austin School District is now running ads, but they are willing to accept students from anywhere in the Austin area, not just within what is traditionally their school district. I'm guessing that's a way of boosting their numbers to get more money, but just thought it'd be funny for you to hear about that. Talk to you soon. Bye. Now, if you want a canary in the coal mine of the government school system and its demise being upon us, there it is. Because let's talk about Austin for a little, little bit here. This isn't Detroit or Stockton, California. This is one of the biggest growth markets in the, the country. I mean, if you want to look at a place where jobs are being created, jobs are growing, and people are moving to, Houston, Fort Worth, Dallas, and when I say Fort Worth, Dallas, it's the whole Plano, Richardson, Addison, that whole area, uh, the whole metro mess, and then Austin. I mean, these are incredible growth markets. If you want to see what the growth market potential or what it has been in Austin, you know, do yourself a little experiment. Go to U-Haul and price a truck from Austin to Los Angeles and one from Los Angeles to Austin. You'll find the one from, from, from Austin to L.A. to be about half the price as the one from L.A. to Austin. Why? When the truck goes from Austin to L.A., they know it's going to come back. When it goes from L.A. to Austin, it's probably not coming back. That just shows you uh, the, the pattern of movement in our country today. So you have a place where the population is growing and a forcible monopoly which is the government school system, is advertising. When you want to know that an entity is in trouble, when a forcible monopoly starts advertising and spending money to get more business, they've got problems. They've got problems. And, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're now competing for students, even though they don't have to, because technically everybody's in a district and has to go to the school in their district. And, and this is a symptom of uh, a disease that's a, a good disease. See, sometimes you get a disease that's actually a good disease that wipes out something that's old and, and rotting so that something new can come. 
Um, I won't get into a big tangent or soapbox moment today on this. I think anybody who's listened to this show for any length of time knows I am not a friend to the government school system. I do believe we should stop referring to the government schools as public schools. Albertsons is a public grocery store. It is privately owned, but the public can go there. It is open to the public. That's what public uh, public business means, that it's open to the public. You can't go down. A lot of people, you can't even get into your child's own school. They say it's for security to protect the children. No, it's because they want to control the situation. If something is a public entity, then it's, be, it's free to be used by choice, not compulsory and used uh, under the threat of violence at the point of a gun, which is what the school system is. You'll put your kids in our school system or you'll conform to some other standard that we've created for you or we will come out and arrest you for not sending your kid to school. And, and when, when it's, you know, you have that love, like you get every single kid, you know, except for the weird homeschoolers and the few people who can afford private school, you get every single kid guaranteed to show up and paid for with other people's money and you're in decline. That means you're screwed. And, and I'm telling you guys, some of you, you have a hard time with this because you think this is anti-teacher. This has nothing to do with teachers. You know, I can take, let's, let's take another profession, mechanics. Mechanics, right? I don't have anything, you know, for or against mechanics. I actually used to be one in the military, but let's just take mechanics. If mechanics have the tools and the training and the workshop, that's set up to work on cars from the 1950s, and you start sending them 2018 vehicles to fix, how good of a job are they going to do, no matter how good of a person that they are? Well, in our school systems, we're using 1850s to 1880s methodologies. Designed for the Industrial Revolution to teach children in 2018 when the average person walking around has a smartphone in their ass pocket with more computing technology in that one phone than the entire bank of computers that put a man on the moon in 1969 in NASA. So it's worse than a 1950s and 60s mechanic with the tools from them trying to work on a 2018 car. You're not anti-mechanic for pointing out, hey, the tools are old, the technology's old, the training's old. The methodology's old, and the cars don't work that way anymore. And, and that's where we're at. And people are beginning to figure it out. And, and that's why you're seeing school, homeschool, and unschooling growth in the millions. And it's only going to continue. And I think we're starting to see, like what, four years ago, it was about when I started saying that within the next 10 to 15 years, you will see public schools and public universities, again, government schools and government universities, that's the right way to say it, follow my own rule, begin to close their doors. And everybody thought I was nuts. Well, when you have one of the largest growth markets in the nation begging parents on the radio to please send your kids to our school, which we already have an open, forcible mandate to make you do, the writing's on the wall. The writing is on the wall. And good. It is time for a change in the way that we educate our children. There are so many problems that we have that are rooted in the methodology of education and the system of education where our children, on a daily basis, are in an institution 
that is run almost exactly like a minimum security prison. And I know some of you think that's over the top, but it's not. And I'm back to with all these school shootings and all, no one will talk about the fact that age 0 to 24, which is the school age, because they, they count colleges and school shootings too, you know, right? Of course they do. But in that age group, 0 to 24, which is college age down to preschool, about 10,000 and change of our young people are killing themselves with suicide every year. And tens and tens of thousands of more attempting and failing to commit suicide. Girls are three times less likely to successfully commit suicide than boys. And girls try at much higher levels. We have a big problem. We have a big problem if that's going on. And it has to do with the size of the schools. It has to do with social media. It has to do with the drug use. And I'm talking mostly the, the prescribed drug use. It has to do with conformity. When you teach a child that they must conform to be of value, and they cannot conform because they are not that person. When you try to jam the square peg in the round hole long enough, the square peg says screw it and opts out. They do it with drugs, they do it with lifestyle choices, and sometimes they do it by choosing just not to be here anymore. And it is time that we start saving the lives of our children by pulling them out of these schools in ever greater numbers and creating not just homeschool, but as many methods and ways to educate our children as possible. And we need to do it. We don't need to ask for permission. We just need to act. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is James from Memphis, Tennessee. I was wondering if you still recommend playing strawberries in the same way that you did in that MSB video you made a while back. I had a couple of containers very similar to the ones you use, and I was looking to do that. Also, I was wondering when you would plant those. I'm in Memphis. I'm in on the border between Zone 8 and Zone 7. I was wondering if now would be a good time to plant in a fresh away a couple of weeks. Also, another quick question. I'm beginning to raise quail, and I know you recommend putting the droppings into a warm bin. Can I put the wood shavings straight into the warm bin? Thank you for everything, Jack. So for those that haven't seen it, there is some video content in the MSB that you can't get anywhere else. And there's a video, very old video, actually. It's probably about eight years old, of myself and Dorothy building a strawberry planter. And all we did was take a really big pot that we had lying around um, and drill some holes in it with a hole saw and then pop strawberries in the top and in the sides. And it works very well. I'm not doing it right now. We had a you know, couple moves since then, and a big, heavy pot like that is, is difficult to move. Um, when we lived in Arkansas... I did the same thing with hanging pots uh, on my patio. I had a pergola and enough sunlight came through that strawberries is really good there. So I had these hanging pots, you know, about the big, the size of it you would get. You know, they put a big geranium or something like that. And I had like six of them hanging from my pergola. Then you just had to take a garden hose up there and, and water them every once in a while. And uh, they ended up being destroyed uh, by benevolent destroyers is what I call them. I did such a, an incredible job at that property that we we blew up the frog population. There were frogs everywhere. And um, there's a little tree frog called the Cope's Gray Tree Frog. They look a lot like the green tree frogs that you're familiar with, but they're just they're gray. And so one night I go out and I shine my flashlight at one of these pots and I see all these little, like, piercing lights coming out of one of the pots, like like reflectors every time I shine. And I looked in there, there was like five of those frogs living in the pot. They would crawl in through the holes and burrow in there. And I thought it was really cool, but over time they actually 
uh, took out so much soil that uh, the, the plants started to suffer from it. And I, I one day I took one and I dumped it out. I should have videoed this. There had to be 40 of these little damn frogs living in one pot, uh, which was a good thing. But because they could so easily move the dirt out and burrow in there, they you know they made a frog colony. There's probably a lesson in that, doing something like that kind of on purpose, uh, more for the frogs and for the strawberries. But this type of growing of strawberries where we take a large container or even a small container and we create holes in the side of it and we plant into it works really well. It's a very space-efficient way to garden. Uh, I Actually, with the one that you see in the MSB, what I ended up doing with it was I actually ended up pulling the strawberries out of the top and planting more conventional vegetables on the top and then strawberries growing around the side. And I used everbearers with that. And uh, there's two types of strawberries, everbearers and juneberers. And juneberers have some variants, but they tend to bear in June. Uh, you can have really big crop one time. Uh, and everbearers will bear throughout the year. And I, I prefer everbearers, but actually a good mix in a larger uh, project is probably a good idea. So I definitely still recommend that if that's the way that you want to go. As to when to plant them, uh, strawberries are very winter hardy. They're a perennial, and they overwinter just fine. They can, when they're too far along, too early, get really knocked back and even killed by a, a freeze or a frost, though. I would probably hold off for a couple more weeks. And it is much cheaper to buy the strawberry root crowns, basically, uh, that you saw me use in that project, and they work okay. But live plants are going to have a much higher success rate. Uh, the, the, the root crowns can be dynamite and a hell of a deal. Uh, but I've gotten them many times from providers where they were not taken care of, they dry out too much, and you just get either very few of them or none of them might even grow. So I, I'd look to live plants for this uh, if you have the budget for it. On your quail droppings into the worm beds, yeah, you throw the – that's the whole point. Uh, I usually use aspen shavings. when I, Now that my quail live in an aviary, I don't. But when I had uh, you know a regular rack system, I put aspen shavings in a tray underneath there. That would collect the poo. And it's when it's time to replace it, you just take the whole pan and dump it straight in the worm bin. And uh, they'll process wood chips and all for you. And they'll be quite happy to do it. And man, um, you start doing that with your worm bin, assuming you can keep the ants out of your worm bin, that can be a challenge. You will see the population. And it'll be it'll, like when you stick your hand in it, it'll just be like, you're like, where's the soil? Because it's almost all worms. Uh, the worms will up their population directly in proportion to what you're feeding them. And if you have a couple quail, quail cages, you'll be giving them plenty of great food. And the castings out of that is the best fertilizer you can imagine in the world. So good question. And uh, guys that are MSB members, you've never checked out the videos, go check them out. They're old, but they're pretty cool. Uh, and let's take another question. Hi, Jack. Dustin. I wanted to talk about UBI, cryptocurrencies, and what it has to offer for the future. Now, we've talked about UBI, and I personally feel that it is immoral in that it would require some sort of um, transfer of wealth from, from one person to another. But could not a cryptocurrency adopt as some sort of national or virtual nation currency that has some sort of airdrop function into it that if uh, you reach some sort of threshold or you're below some sort of threshold of holding that specific coin where there'd be monthly, annually, whatever airdropped amounts, of of that currency into those who hold a certain amount or less, and that way you could have a currency that that gives value to those at the at the bottom rung without having to take from others. I guess technically you would through inflation in a way, but uh, it was just a thought that I had, and just want to know your thoughts. Thanks. 
Well, let, let's just ignore the ethics of UBI and the consequences of UBI, good or bad, for just a moment. And look functionally only at UBI or universal basic income. The, the concept of universal basic income is every citizen is guaranteed an income of at least X. And that X in our world has had numbers thrown around between $800 and $2,500 a month. And if you look at what we tax our citizenry now and the total number of people to pay back to, even accounting for the fact that the guy that makes hundred grand and pays taxes on it, even though he gets his UBI, basically, he's paying in more than he's getting out. Even ignoring that completely, even for billionaires, there's not enough money to do this. There's not enough money that, that goes into the government coffers to then pay everybody that money and then have enough money to run even the what you would call the essential needs of government. Uh, we couldn't do that and run our military. Now, I, I am you know, I, I'm not opposed to cutting military spending. I don't think we need to spend more than the next 10 countries in the world combined. Uh, I think there's better ways, and if we were more worried about defense rather than offense, we might not need as much military as we think we do. Um, but this is like not what Jack Spirico wants. This is the way things are. And you can't do it in our current economic system. The math doesn't work. The only way that we could do a universal basic income system in our country and have it work is with a cryptocurrency. And we would have to get away from debt-backed currencies and go to a actual, and I know some are going to flip your lid again, I'm not saying the way things should be here. I'm saying the way things could be done where it could, with big-ass air quotes, work. All right? Not that it would be a good, good or bad. I'm not judging it right now. I'm giving you what could work. All right, so by creating a cryptocurrency, a national crypto dollar, and letting it be a true fiat currency, we do not have a fiat currency. You've been lied to. Mostly by people don't want to sell you gold and silver. We have a debt backed currency through fiat was the government passed a law that this is how money would work and that was the fiat but the currency does not value itself through pure fiat every dollar in america is created by a loan that's that's and plus interest which means you can never pay off all the debt because there'll never be as much money as there is debt every time we loan a new dollar into existence we create at expense and interest along with it. And I'm not going to say this doesn't work and it's stupid or whatever because it actually works pretty good. And one of the things we need to understand if we're going to have honest political discussions is every system works. Communism in Russia worked for some people. And overall, it worked from a standpoint that people were fed and clothed, not as well as they were here, but it did not work. The country didn't explode into nothingness, right? Um, Nazi Nazism in Germany worked. The trains ran on time. This is not an ethical judgment. You know, that's obviously a negative there, but it worked. So when we say something works or doesn't work, we need to be honest that every system of government that's ever been applied on some level worked. And every system of economics that's ever been tried on some level worked. So that I'm not putting a real high standard for works here. But if you created a crypto dollar and you said that we are going to value the resources of the country at a specific value, 
based on what is the value of our timber lands, what is the value of our natural resources, what is the value of just living here, what is our gross domestic product, all of those things. And you were going to basically tie the currency to the national value. And the inflation rate would be tied to the increase in national value. Then the government could basically spend the currency into existence. And that's what welfare really is. It's the government spending money into circulation. Now, again, I'm not judging the ethics or the, you know, or the morality behind this. That's what it is. When the government gives somebody a welfare check or a SNAP food card or something like that, what the government is essentially doing is spending that money into circulation because when you give it to the welfare recipient, they do not save it, they spend it, and it goes into the economy, and then it begins to move and multiply through our economy. If you wanted to make UBI work, what you would do is the first thing you would do is eliminate every single welfare program in the country. If states want to run their own, they're free to, but they get no federal assistance in it whatsoever. The federal government gets out of the business of welfare because UBI becomes the welfare system. That's your, that's your baseline. The next thing that you do is everybody gets it. Every single person gets it, period. And it becomes the only legal tender in the United States. There is no more, the old money goes away, the new money is the new money, and everybody has to spend it on the public blockchain, the government blockchain. This is hell, but it would work. And then you get rid of income taxes, and you get rid of Social Security taxes. There is no more income tax, there is no more Social Security tax. States tax things however they want to, but they don't get no help from the federal government on it. And you institute a national sales tax somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15%. And since it's run on blockchain, no merchant anywhere ever has to charge the fee. It's done the way there's a network fee right now when you send Bitcoin. It just happens. Bob sends Tom 100 crypto dollars, and Bob actually ends up getting charged $110. And Tom gets 100 And the government takes that piece back as a sales tax. If you do that, if you did everything that I just said, you could actually create a universal basic income system that would be relatively stable. And while it would be an inflationary system, that's what we have now, and it does work, and it would be a reasonable rate of inflation. In other words, it would not be that you need to spend your dollar today because it's only going to be worth 50 cents tomorrow. You could, you could manage that system into, in fact, you could build a computer algorithm that took away Congress's power to screw with it and took away the Federal Reserve's power to screw with it where the computer adjusted it accordingly. And then whatever was allowable under the rate of inflation would be paid out completely proportionally as UBI to everybody. And that does not mean that your UBI would be sufficient to pay for everything you need. It means you'd have something. And then you'd have to go figure out what else to do. That's one way you could do a UBI. The other way you could do a UBI is universal basic income for what? Universal basic income for what? The, the way me, people mainly talk about UBI is for existing. For the sheer existence of your, 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 your skin and your flesh and your bone and your blood and your eyes and your air and your ability to convert oxygen to CO2 for trees. For that alone, for your existence, you get this money. 
The other way you could do it where it could work would be through guaranteed employment in return for universal basic income. In other words, there's a lot of shit that needs to be done in our country. There's a lot of shit that needs to be done in our country. And you could say anybody can get $800 a month in return for 20 hours a week of work. Report to your local work group and ask them what you need to be doing with yourself that week. And because work that produces a tangible result adds value, it would go right into the algorithm of figuring out how to pay that out. Now, if you do a UBI that way, you do everything else that I just said. I don't like saying this because it actually would be a great thing for the state as far as how to run a state. So long as I'm consulting to the state, which I want to abolish, but I'm, I'm being pragmatic here. Now, you do everything else I say with no income tax whatsoever, but the only people to get UBI are people that show up to do the 20 hours of work. This is actually now a lot more doable. There is a product of their labor, and the average person that has a, a good-paying job can always fall back to that if they lose their job. There's no need for welfare, because you can't say you can't find a job, because we'll find something for you to do. We could have really clean streets, for instance. We could put these people to work doing recycling. We could put these people to work doing child care. I mean, there's so we could put these people to work doing educational programs then replace our school systems with a myriad of choices. I mean, it's, I don't trust the state to do this shit, but this could be good. So where that leads is probably the best way for it to happen is for a virtual nation to take this approach. That there's some level of value that you provide for the virtual nation, and in return, you get a certain amount of income. Delegated proof of stake, like ARC is doing, is one example of that being based on an oligarchy and a positive oligarchy. A, a voluntary oligarchy is a good thing. A involuntary oligarchy is not. It's where the oligarchs use power and influence and force of the state to keep everybody else down and control what they do. That's what we have in our country, and we criticize Russia for having, which is exactly what we have in our country. It looks a little different, a little different paint on it. But we could do that in a virtual nation uh, with some level of what is the value that you bring. With ARC, it's about a 10% return on your money for putting your money into a system that helps verify transactions and for voting and participating in the vote and choosing your oligarch. Because that's what you're really doing in ARC. It's you're choosing your oligarch of choice. I think this oligarch will do the best for us. I'm voluntarily converting my fiat dollars, my debt-backed currency, into art currency, and I'm putting aside some of it to not spend, to put up as a stake, to verify transactions for other people, and therefore I am contributing value. But that's only one way that value could be contributed in a society. And I think that there is a lot of potential to leverage these things, and, you know, 90% of them will fail. They'll work, but they'll fail. But how many do we have to do to get 10 good ones if 90% of them fail? 100? That's doable. And I think somebody will crack the code of kind of creating a system where the system itself assigns value to individuals based on their contributions in a very non-subjective way, something that's very concrete. And that anybody that wants to be somehow productive in that, 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 that group 
can have a baseline of existence. Now, that doesn't, and see, you cannot have it be sufficient to have a three bedroom house and keep your air conditioner running all summer long, your heater running all winter long, and eat steak every day. You can't do it for multiple reasons. One, it will, do, if you do that, you will destroy motivation. And two, it's not economically sustainable because then there's not enough people going out there to make all the stuff that you want to buy. That's why socialism always, in the end, even though it works, it also fails. But if it's enough that you can scrape by, then the incentive, and, and you don't lose it for doing better, and that's, that's the trap of welfare. The reason welfare is such an abysmal failure, the reason we have generational welfare, the reason we have people that can't do anything anymore is because attempting to move up costs them everything that they have and it's not worth the risk to them. So if we have a baseline community-level welfare system, that if you have that, then it's for the welfare of all. Then you create a system where people will move up because they're more comfortable when they do, and they don't lose that support layer when they, when they attempt it. You'll also find this. People that do really well for themselves will probably turn around and find other people that do well for themselves and say, you know, for people that are trying, can we take our UBI and put it in a pool? And then say, hey, why don't you guys come over here and do something really cool, and we'll give you some of, the, some of our UBI. We call that entrepreneurship. right? So I, I think this could be done. Don't, don't plan on it. Don't make it your retirement plan. And don't trust government to do it. But it's not that it cannot be done. It's not that it's not possible. It's not that we could not create a world where being willing to do anything something of value for your fellow man would be sufficient to at least eat every day, be warm or you know when, when it's cold outside, uh, to have basic health care available. And I'm not talking about universal health care where you go to the doctor for a dollar or something. But you know, like if you are going to die and we can save you, we do that. Access to decent quality food. Things. We can build that world. It's just that the state never will. The state cannot do it. Because the state will fall victim to the iron law of bureaucracy every single time. And, and the only way we can build a system like that is to take the state out of the equation. Virtual nations, cryptocurrencies is a step in that direction. It's not the final answer, right? It's not, not like a millionaire we need a final answer. But it is, it is a stepping stone toward freeing humanity. And that's why the state really hates it. And that's why they're trying to twist it into something that becomes an enslavement tool for them. Because it could be the greatest freeing thing that humanity has ever created, or it could become the most totalitarian tool of the state possible. I know I'm going to get hate mail for this segment. I can't believe you're advocating. I've advocated nothing. I've advocated nothing. I've given you an honest examination of what could be done and how it might work if we did that. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Melissa in Texas. Last year, we helped butcher a beef that is so tough we can't chew it. The yearling calf was hung in a walk-in cooler for a week before butchering and primarily grass-fed. It was finished off with grains from a local microbrewery. The roasts are no longer a problem because we were given an instant pot for Christmas. However, we have beautiful steaks of various cuts languishing in the freezer because we aren't culinary experts. I have basic cooking skills if you want simple farm fare. 
and my husband is just learning how to cook and grill. Is there a way we can salvage these without resorting to purchasing a meat grinder to turn them into burger? There are ribeyes, T-bones, and beautiful round steaks. How would you prepare them to tenderize them? Thanks. All is not lost. We can fix this. There's ways that we can do it. Um, but I'm going to tell you straight up, the thicker the steaks are, the more likely it is that we're going to be able to fix them. One of the real problems with beef and the way that people butcher beef is they cut steaks too thin. And this makes it very difficult to cook steak to a beautiful medium, uh, to rare, to medium rare, and if you must, a pinkish medium well. Like, And we don't need to go any further than that. And what I find... It, almost inevitably, when people tell me that, that especially something like a ribeye is tough, it is usually because it is overcooked because they are afraid to undercook it. And it is amazing how quickly the texture of meat changes as you go from red to light red to pink to gray. And it is almost inevitable that if you just do a standard grilling, frying, whatever, of a steak... And you cook that steak, especially a grass-fed animal that got to move around and be a real cow, to a medium well to well, it will be tough. The first thing I would suggest is get a good meat thermometer. Try cooking one of those ribeyes to 140 degrees on the grill, on a very hot grill, assuming it is thick enough to do that. And you might find that that alone solves your problem. Got some other stuff we can try. Another thing we can do is we can get ourselves a sous vide cooker. And we can cook to a very low temperature for a long time and then sear off. So typically with a one-inch steak, if we wanted to do it at a, a medium, we would, depending on the cut, and this does change by the cut, uh, ribeyes finish way differently uh, than strip steaks when you do sous vide. But 140 to 145 degrees. And with a you know, three-quarter to one inch, we're probably going to have that steak on a sous vide cook for 45 minutes to an hour and 15, depending on the, the cut and everything else. But if we leave it there for about, let's say, an hour, 45 to two hours, we're going to get a lot more breakdown of the muscle tissue. I, a lot of people say this doesn't matter, and that's what's great about sous vide, and you can leave it there for hours, and it'll never go above the temperature, blah, blah, blah. Okay, they're, they're right. It won't turn gray, but... The, the, the muscle fibers will begin to break down and the texture will change. And I actually think you can ruin a steak by sous viding it for too long. But if it's tough, changing that texture and breaking down those protein strands is what we're looking to do. So that would be another option is trying sous vide. Probably the, the best option is to make salted steak. If your steaks are a half inch thick or thinner, though, this is going to be a difficult option to pull off. To make salted steak, you are going to look like you have ruined a steak. You're going to pour salt on top of the steak. You have to trust me with this. The rule is 15 minutes per quarter inch. But I'm going to tell you again, you really want three quarter inch or thicker to be able to do this. Assuming you have like a nice one inch ribeye. But what you'll do is you take your ribeye and you'll set it on a cutting board. You get coarse salt for this. You do not want to use fine table salt. Coarse kosher salt completely cover the steak again like you've ruined it is what you will think I mean you cannot see any meat it is coated a quarter inch thick in salt push it down just a tad 
don't massage it in. Just enough that you can flip it over and not have it all just dump off. Coat the other side. It is now buried in salt. Start a timer. 45 minutes for three quarters of an inch. One hour for an inch. One hour and 15 minutes for an inch and a quarter. Okay, those are your, your, your hard numbers. As soon as your timer goes off, take that steak and completely rinse it 100% of all salt. And then either you know do a, a cast iron skillet sear or a grill. It will break down the fibers. It will be the most tender piece of steak that you've ever eaten relative to what it started out as. This is something done a lot uh, with a cut of meat called a London broil. They call it poor man's filet mignon because it makes even the tough London broil cut so tender and juicy and delicious. When you season that steak, you put anything you want on it but no more salt. It will not be salty like a brick like you think it will be, but it will have enough salt that you don't need to be adding any. And I always have to, my wife loves salt, and I always have to caution her, like, I did that as a salted steak. Don't salt it, because she wants the first thing to do is pour salt on it. Please taste your food before you add more salt in all walks of life anyway. So that would be your probably your most foolproof method is to try a salted steak, assuming you have three-quarter inch or thicker cuts of meat. The last one I haven't tried yet, but I think it would be fantastic for you to try and let us know how it works. It is to age your meat using koji, K-O-J-I. Koji is what we make uh, sake from. It's a, 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 a fermented uh, rice. So we use a, a bacteria, koji bacteria, uh, or yeast. I'm not sure which one it is. We get a culture. We put it on rice, and it starts to break the rice down. And then we can use that as a starter in making sake rice wine. But it's also become a huge thing for chefs and gourmet cooks to use on meat. And the way that it works is you make some of this stuff up, and it's like a paste, and you coat your meat in it, and you let it sit for one to two days in the refrigerator. And it creates the aging of like a 40 to 50 dry-aged steak um, in a, a about a 40-hour to 48-hour period. And I have not personally tried it. I have a link to an article that describes the process. You can get Koji uh, starters and stuff like that on Amazon. It's not hard to find. And it's something I'm going to play with this year. But I would definitely recommend considering that as well. So those are, you know, multiple different ways that you can deal with this. Lastly, if all else fails, make biltong. It's amazing because there's salt in biltong. So you take that, you know, ribeye and cut it into, you know, one inch thick strips, and give it a, 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 a spritzing in uh, apple cider vinegar, and hit it with salt, black pepper, coriander. Let it sit overnight. Hang it up. In a cool, dry area, let it cure. You know, test it after about the third to fourth day. When you slice it thinly, and it's got, it looks like a, you know, a little bit less rare than you'd want a steak to be. Uh, stop the process, put it into jars or bags, freeze it, uh, and you know, throw that sucker on a meat slicer and slice it thin. Uh, that'd be a pretty high use of that stuff. And that, you know, you think, well, I'm going to make jerky out of it. No, biltong is not jerky. It is a curing process, and it. Biltong has kind of a toughness to the outside, but the product itself is actually remarkably tender, and when done right, it's not bone dry. It's a little bit moist in the center. So that would be kind of your last ditch, everything else failed uh, method of, of dealing with your meat. So hopefully one or several of these methods can be helpful to you and others. That brings us to the end of another show, and I want to remind you guys, if you like this show and the work that I do, one of the ways you can help support us is by doing your online shopping, and when you're doing that, just go to tspaz.com first. That's all you have to do, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com, go there, 
buy your stuff. You help support the Survival Podcast. It's that easy. Now, I do have a lot of stuff there that you can check out, reviews that I've done over the years, everything categorized, you know, kitchen tools, tactical, you name it, I've got stuff for you. And every day I have a new product for you or a product we've brought around before coming back around. Today I have for you a product called a flour sack towel. This is basically a, a, a really fine meshed, thin, uh, well-made towel out of cotton. And I use them primarily, and they're great for that purpose, just anything you would use a towel for. Um, a lot of times they're used in restaurants as napkins. Uh, they're good for cleaning. They're good for polishing, all kinds of stuff. I've had some people write in and say these, they use these exact same ones as cloth diapers, and they work good for that. I use them for, I think, a higher purpose than a child pooping in it. I use them to make something called yogurt cheese, also known as Lebna. And I, I discovered these when I found a, a, an inferior and more expensive product at Walmart because I wanted to try making uh, yogurt cheese for the very first time. And I didn't have any cheesecloth, and they didn't either. And I looked at the flour sack talents, and this should actually work better. It should be, unlike cheesecloth, highly reusable. It can be washed, laundered, etc. And it's neutral. It doesn't have any dyes or chemicals in it. So I wonder if it'll work, and it worked great. Now, how do you make yogurt cheese? You take yogurt. And full fat or, or, you know, is better than no fat. I think America is insane when it comes to yogurt. You, you, there is no such thing as actual yogurt that's zero, no fat. That's not yogurt anymore. I don't know what, it's yogurt tasting milk crud. Um, yogurt is supposed to be made with whole milk. So if you can get whole milk yogurt, that's fine, but you want a plain yogurt with active live cultures. Yes, you can make your own, or yes, you can go to the store and find plain yogurt where you see that the, the ingredients are milk. And uh, active in live cultures, and that's all that's in there. And all you do is you take this stuff, you take your flour sack towel, and you lay it out, and you dump your yogurt in there, add a pinch of salt, mix it up, and then you can either hang it from something and let it drip into a bowl or a receptive container of some kind, or you can take like a bowl and put like a cheese, uh, not a cheese strainer, a strainer, like a colander for like spaghetti noodles over that bowl, and then put that towel in there and wrap it up and let it sit out, not in the refrigerator. We need the bacteria to work here to make it tangy and delicious. And 12 to 24 hours later, you will have yogurt cheese. And it tastes kind of like a tangy cream cheese, but it's much better for you than cream cheese. It's actually incredibly low carb because most of the carbohydrates are chewed up by all the little lactobacillus bacterium. Yes, bacteria, I know. Oh, God, no, no, this is good for you. you got to trust me here. This is safe to do. We do it all the time, and we are very happy about it when we do it. Now, you'll have the whey, which is all the moisture that comes out. It's kind of a golden yellow color, tastes sour. It is fantastic for building up the probiotics in your body, which also the cheeses as well. So don't throw that away. Drink it, give it to your dogs, give it to your livestock, whatever. Do not throw it away. It's too valuable. And then you take that cheese and you use it like you would use any softer cream cheese. It doesn't melt like typical cheese because it's not really cheese. It's really Lebna. Um, but to take it to another level, what you do is when you're making it, you add stuff to it. You do this. You can do it after you make it. I like to do it you know, when you're making it because it's all soft and easy to mix up then. So some of my favorite stuff, basil and garlic. Everybody that tries this one likes it. Chopped jalapenos and garlic, either seeded or seedless, depending on how hot you want it to be. Cracked pepper, rosemary, and thyme. 
fantastic. Um, cracked black pepper and almond slivers. That's a really interesting one. Uh, and lemon zest and chopped walnuts. These are all great. A little drizzle of honey at the end. Oh, man. Fantastic product. If you do crackers and stuff, uh, just a little bit on a crackers. Amazing. Um, I try not to eat a lot of carbs. So I'll take um, the small miniature sweet peppers and you know cut them in half, de-seed them, and just fill them with this cheese and just eat them like little snacks. And again, anything that you would use a cream cheese for, this stuff is just dynamite. Uh, it's just a fantastic thing, and flour sack towels let you make it over and over and over again. We take ours, we throw them in the short cycle in the in the uh, the washing machine with like just no soap or nothing, just straight in there. Hot water, short cycle, done, and uh, use them over and over and over again. And I like things that can be reused instead of things that are thrown away one-time use like cheesecloth. Now, you want the Jack Spearco hack, don't you? You know you want the Jack Spearco hack. You always want the Spearco hack. So one of the things about this stuff is it is a fairly thin, creamy cheese. And the longer you leave it, the more whey that comes out of it, the more cheese-like and thicker it becomes. But there's a limit to how long you want to leave it out and how tangy you want it to get. And there's a limit to how much of the whey will just come out. So what you do, you get your colander, you put that over your bowl, you put your towel in there, you throw your yogurt in, you put your seasonings in, whatever they're going to be, you mix it up, you fold your towel over, like I said, then you go get yourself like a big-ass jar or can that's a weight, and you set it on top of there like a cheese press. And because you have weight being exerted, it will process faster, and it will become more firm. That's the Spearco hack. Check it out. Flour sack towels. You owe it to yourself if you've never made yogurt cheese to give it a try. It will become something you serve to your family and your friends often. It is dynamite for your health. And it is so stupid easy. You owe it to yourself to give it a try. And personally, I think the Utopia Kitchen flour sack towels are the best bang for the buck. You get 12 of them uh, in the bundle. And, and it's just a great deal. And it's a product, like I said, that lasts a long time. Okay, with that, let's get to our song of the day. Song of the day is by a band I hadn't thought about forever. And they're not one of my favorite bands. But I, I actually think this is a great song for today. It's called Do You Remember by the Beach Boys. And this is old Beach Boys, 1964 Beach Boys. And it may be one of the first songs ever written that pays homage To the people that came before you, like Chuck Berry and other things like that. Because you're really talking about, do you remember Little Richard, the people that gave us rock and roll? I think that's kind of cool. And it may, I, I'm not sure, but it may be the first song ever in, in modern times ever done that way. You know, like there's the song, I can't think of who does it now, but there's a, a song where it says things like, you know, play me some old Alabama and stuff like that. It's hard to think of the fact that Alabama's old when you're, you know, my age and grew up in the 80s and what have you. Uh, but, like, there's songs like that now that talk about other musicians that came before you. Even Nirvana did it, you know, we're all Beatles, right? Um, but I think this might be the first one. Now, here's the real reason I think this is a good song for right now. With this debate about guns and the Second Amendment, for obvious real reasons, Emotions are high on both sides of the debate. And people are being horrible to each other. And, and guys, you know me. I am such a lover of liberty. You're not taking my guns from me. And I'll fight tooth and nail to protect my rights and your rights. 
but I don't need to be horrible to someone that doesn't understand on the other side. And they're being equally horrible. There is so much emotion right now. Um, we've seen this before, but I don't know that I've ever seen it at this level. We've seen the division in our country before, and I don't know that in my lifetime, I've, I know it's been higher in certain things like the civil rights movement and all, but I, I've, I've never seen it as bad as it seems like it's become. And sometimes, man, we just need to step back and remember who we really are and where we really came from. And this is music from a simpler time when in some ways people were just more decent to each other. So even though it's not like a top ten pick for me or anything, man, I think, and there's no way that, 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 that John could have known when he chose this song that it would hit at this time because this had not happened yet when, I, when he put together the most current list of songs. And it's, it's, it's a good time for it. So just take a step back, take a breath, and remember a time when people were just a little bit more decent to each other, and hopefully we can get back to that again. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Little Richard sang it in, Dick Clark brought it to life. Danny and the juniors hit a crew, stuck as sharp as a knife. Well now, do you remember all the guys that gave us rock and roll? Chuck Berry's got to be the greatest thing that came along. He made the guitar beats and wrote the all-time greatest song. Well now, do you remember all the guys that gave us rock and roll? Chopping didn't get very far Goodness gracious, big balls of fire Nothing's really moving till the saxophone's ready to blow And the beat's not jumping till the drummer says he's ready to go Well now, do you remember all the guys that gave us rock and roll? Let's hear the high voice wail Oh, oh, oh.